Lord, we do thank you for our day today. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. Um, even when we're faithless, you remain faithful, for you cannot deny yourself. We thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. We pray as we look at the scriptures today, you'd help us to learn more about your word and the truth and the, the grandeur of the scriptures. We pray for Bob as he preaches in 1 Corinthians 4. We pray, Heavenly Father, for clarity in our minds, all for the sake of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we are continuing to refute the, Nat, the New Apostolic Reformation movement. One thing we pointed out last time from some of their teachers, George Warnock, um, some of the other ones that we pointed out, the New Apostolic Reformation movement really does look forward to a restored church that in some sense is going to bring about a Christianized planet. And there's different forms of it within the New Apostolic Reformation movement. So what I want to do today is refute post-millennialism because whether it's the New Apostolic Reformation form of post-millennialism or some of those in the Reform movement themselves, post-millennialism, as you will see today, is a big problem. And I'll show you some passages where I, I think it borders on heresy where there has to be an outright denial of the coming of Christ. And I'll show you where that happens in 2 Thessalonians 2.8. So with that, let's begin by just mentioning where we left off last time. I left off by talking about this little time scheme that you see the timeline on the screen before you. And I want to just lay this out for you. What I'm claiming on this timeline is here you have the cross representing the first advent of Christ. Remember, Jesus was crucified in 33 A.D., well, then I'm saying that ushered in the last days. Of course, you have Pentecost shortly thereafter. So I'm kind of lumping the cross of Christ and Pentecost all in this cross. That ushers in the last days, and the last days will end at the 70th week of Daniel. Okay, so the last days can be called the church age, sometimes referred to it as the time of the Gentiles, or we can refer to it as the last days, and that will end at the inception of the 70th week of Daniel. The 70th week of Daniel begins with the rapture of the church. Then the wrath of God is poured out. That will last seven years, in which case Christ returns to set up his millennial kingdom. So what I'm going to show you is how post-millennialists equivocate on terms that you and I use. So whether it's the New Apostolic Reformation movement or those in the Reformed tradition, they're going to use terminology... In, uh, regarding post-millennialism that is different than us. So, for example, the last days. Um, and by the way, I, I'm going to give you a source. You can look up a podcast. It was actually on YouTube of Joel Webbon. It's uh, W-E-B-B-O-N. He has a ministry. called Right Response Ministries. And he was on with a man named Jeff Durbin. The title of the message was The Rapture and Post-Millennialism Explained. And at the 27-minute mark you can see the evidence for what I'm showing you. In it, they deny that the last days exist as we understand it from the time of the first advent of Christ to the time of the second advent of Christ. But instead, for them, they see the last days as ending in 70 A.D. So think about it. Just shortly after the time of the cross, the last days end because for them, the last days are the last days of the Old Covenant. And so for them, the destruction of the temple is the final nail in the coffin, so to speak, of the Old Covenant period. So do you recall last time what I did is I gave you a passage that refutes this, where, turn your Bibles, if you will, again, let's just review it, Second Peter chapter 3, 
verses 3 through 4. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take each of their equivocations and I'm going to show you from Scripture why they cannot be right. So we're going to define the last days. And again, what I want to do is, do you remember the old saying, if you want to detect a counterfeit, the best way is to be so familiar with the real dollar that the counterfeit stands out. In the same way, with post-millennialism, we want to be so familiar with the truth in eschatology that any deviation stands out. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the truth. So look at it says, 2 Peter 3, verses 3 through 4. Peter, remember, is dealing with false teachers. They're saying, Jesus isn't coming, and therefore we can live any way we want. So Peter responds. He says, know this first of all, that in the last days... Mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Dear ones, I want you to notice the term for coming there is the term parousia. That is the technical expression for the second advent of Christ. And I cited from the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament that when that term parousia that's rendered coming is used regarding the coming of Christ, it is exclusively used for the second coming and not the first coming. In other words, parousia can be used for other things, but when it's referring to the coming of Christ, it's exclusively used for the second coming. So says the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, and I think they're exactly right. In fact, let me give you a quick quote from it. They said this, this is the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, Primitive Christianity waits for the Jesus who has come already as the one who is still to come. This is them now. The hope of an imminent coming of the exalted Lord in messianic glory is, however, so to the forefront in the New Testament that the terms are never used for the coming of Christ at his first coming, unquote. So now what we have to do is define, do we understand what the policy is, the coming of the Lord? Because if we can locate the parousia to this time period as I'm showing you, then we've just proven that the last days have to extend from the first advent to the second advent. Let's just think about it for a moment. Would it make any sense that Peter is saying that in the last days prior to 70 AD, people are going to mock the coming of Christ? But after 70 AD, they'll never do that. Just think about that for a moment. That's what you would have to believe if you're one of the post-millennialists. Are you with me? Um, yes, and I'll take a question here, but then I'll try to go for a while. But that's all right, Luann, we'll take you in the back. I'll try to get through this slide today. I'm sorry, cause, but I just did no, want to interject I, because I emailed Bob on this question yesterday. Yeah. So like the mid-Acts people who say that the church wasn't formed until the middle of Acts because everything up until then was under the old covenant. They're kind of in the same thing. They've just moved, you know, it's just a different change of when that old covenant ended. Is that kind of right? Yeah, that, that's right. Um, now, I, I don't know if they would necessarily be post-millennial in the truest sense, but yeah, I think what we have to do is to say the first advent of Christ, according to Hebrews 1, ushers in the last days. And also, when we look at the first advent of Christ, Pentecost is essential because this is something that Christ himself pours out, namely the Spirit. Um, Remember, he is the one who's depicted as sending the Spirit along with the Father. So absolutely, that is the, the end of the Old Covenant period, right? 
But the last days really goes from the first advent of Christ to his second advent. And that's what we're going to lay out. So what I want to do is lay out a robust understanding so that you all understand how the term parousia is being used. Write down, if you're a note-taker, parousia equals the coming of Christ. What I'm going to show you is the parousia is a seven-year program. And if you don't understand that, you'll be out in left field sometime when you're studying eschatology. The parousia has really been distorted through most of our theologians today. Now, let me explain why. Let's turn to this next page. I, put a, I actually put in a new slide regarding the parousia because this is so important. I want to show you, first of all, in Matthew 24, 37, as Jesus is teaching in the Olivet Discourse, he says, for the parousia of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Jesus' point is not that it will be as sinful as the times of Noah, but rather that days will go on just as they always have. They'll be eating and drinking and giving in marriage. There'll be nothing to tip anyone off and sudden destruction comes. So the people in Noah's day would not listen to the preaching of Noah. The people today won't listen to your preaching. What Jesus' point is, is that there was no sign anywhere that they could look at to say, hey, I think there's a cloud there. There could be rain. There was nothing to point at, nothing to tip them off. There was no warning except for what? The preaching of Noah. So all of a sudden, Noah is in his boat, the ship, with his family, and the destruction came. By the way, that's the precedent in Scripture. Whether it's Luke 17 with Lot is removed, then the destruction comes, or it's Noah is removed, then the destruction comes, the people of God are removed, then the wrath comes. That's Jesus' point. So Jesus is pointing out that the parousia, the coming of Christ, comes at an undetected time. That's the reason he's mentioning Noah. I say that because Ran, uh, excuse me, Ruth Graham Lot, I remember hearing her once on the radio, and she said the reason why Jesus mentions Noah is because she, he wants to link the sinfulness of the days of Noah to the sinfulness of the time right before the time of Christ. Well, then why does Jesus say they were eating and drinking and giving in marriage? Isn't it true that those who forbid marriage are teaching a doctrine of demons according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 4? Well, sure it is. So it's not sinful to eat, it's not sinful to drink, and it's not sinful to be married. So why does Jesus mention that if that's his point? Because it's not his point. His point is time will be just like the days of Noah in the sense there's nothing to tip them off. Now, the reason I have this up there, I want to show you a parallel passage in Luke 17, 26. Luke 17, 26, identical almost in the Greek except one big change. Here Jesus says, and just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. Does everyone see that the difference between the singular parousia and the plural for himera, days, is very significant? In other words, if we're going to make an equal sign, an equation like in mathematics, the singular parousia equals the days plural of the Son of Man. Notice the coming of the Son of Man is the same as the days of the Son of Man. It's identical. Now, why is that important? Because it shows us that the parousia is not a singular day. That's what I couldn't understand. For years of studying this, I always thought the coming of Christ was considered to be on one day. It is not. And here is biblical evidence that that is indeed the case, that it's a plurality of days. Just as the first advent of Christ 
We can look at his virgin birth, his life as he grew in wisdom and knowledge, his perfect life that he lived. He died on the cross. He was raised from the dead. He ascended on high, and he sent the Spirit. That's the first coming of Christ. In the same way, the parousia is a complex event. It's filled with many days, and it begins first with the rapture of the church. Why? Because just as Noah was removed and the wrath came, and just as Lot was removed, then the wrath came, the people of God will be removed, and then the wrath will come. So I want you to see that the rapture of the church is connected to the parousia. Now, turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23. 1 Corinthians 15, 23 And I'm going to show you how the resurrection, which happens at the rapture, is linked to the parousia. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, 23. Notice here the Apostle Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 23, regarding believers in their resurrection, he says, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, so he's the first to have, as Bob was pointing out last week, a glorified body. Bob rightly pointed out that when Lazarus was raised, he'd end up dying again. Okay, he was not given a glorified body. So Christ was the first fruits who had a glorified body, but it says after that, those who are Christ at his parousia. So at the beginning of the 70th week, the parousia is the resurrection. Well, why is that? I'm sorry, I'll, I'll go for about 40 minutes, then I'll come back to you guys. I'll try to get through this data here. So the reason I want to show you that the rapture and the resurrection are associated with the parousia is because oftentimes in my mind, I took the second coming and the rapture and I distinguished them. I differentiated with them. What I'm telling you is the best way to read the scriptures is to see that the first part of the parousia, again, it's a complex of days, begins with the rapture and therefore the resurrection. Let me show you another passage. Turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 4.15. 1 Thessalonians 4.15. Now remember, when you get to 1 Thessalonians 4.15 through 17, you're talking about the rapture. And what was the issue that those in Thessalonica had? They feared that they had dead loved ones who would miss the rapture. So Paul has to put their minds at ease saying, no, the dead in Christ will actually rise first in the twinkling of an eye just prior to the, those of us who are still alive and then we'll be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. But I want you to see the connection to the parousia in the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4.15. So this is two, term, or, excuse me, two verses prior to the mention of the term harpazo for rapture. So 1 Thessalonians 4.15, he says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the parousia of the Lord, that's the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So do you notice then that the rapture is connected to what? The parousia. Now, the reason why the parousia and the rapture begin, I should say the parousia begins with the rapture of the church, the church is removed, is because the people of God have been promised removal prior to the wrath of God being poured out. Now, what passages would we appeal to to prove that? Well, there are promises given, for example, write down 1 Thessalonians 5.9. And the reason 1 Thessalonians 5.9 is particularly important because it says we have not been destined to wrath, but to obtain salvation 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. The reason that is of particular importance is because just six verses earlier, Paul was talking about the day of the Lord, the beginning of God's wrath. So in context, so it's not just talking about final judgment in the lake of fire. He's talking about the beginning of the day of the Lord that comes like a thief. By the way, the parousia, Jesus says in Matthew 24, 43 comes like a thief. Well, how can the day of the Lord come like a thief and the day of the Lord come like a thief? Well, because it all begins at the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. If one were to precede the other, one would cease to be a thief. Are you with me? So 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 says that we cannot be under God's wrath. Let's look at Revelation 3.10. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 3.10. This is a promise that's given to the church at Philadelphia. But remember, the Spirit says, He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, these promises, if you will have faith in Jesus Christ, they apply not just to the seven churches that Jesus talked to, but they apply to all Christians for all time. Again, Jesus really addressing specific churches. And yes, some of them have specific issues, but when it comes to the promises, these are promises that are for us. Notice he says to the church at Philadelphia, because you have kept, the term there is tereo, literally can be rendered kept or guarded, the word of my perseverance. So they kept the word of God. I also will keep you. There's tereo again. I will keep you from the hour of testing. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, let's look at that phrase more closely in Revelation 3.10 where it says, I will also keep you from the hour of testing. The combination of the verb tereo with the, pre- the preposition ek means to be preserved on the outside. It means to be preserved on the outside. By the way, there's a wonderful British scholar named Thomas Edgar If you put in your Google search engine, Thomas Edgar, Revelation 3.10, you will read a wonderful article proving that that is the only rendering one can come to if you take the scriptures seriously. That what does tereo ek mean? To be preserved on the outside, meaning you'll never enter into that time period. That's what it means, period. And anyone who says something different doesn't understand the data. Uh, For example, the same verb and preposition are used in the book of Proverbs, that the man would be kept from the harlot. Now, does that mean you actually lie with the harlot, but then the Lord preserves you as you go through the relationship? The reason I say that is because the post-tribulationalists say tereo ek means to be taken through the tribulation and to be taken out after it's ended. Well, that doesn't make any sense in light of the simple verb tereo kept and the preposition from. No, the Lord isn't going to preserve a man as he lies with the harlot afterwards. The idea is that the man never lies with the harlot in the first place. Think about in John 17, 15, Jesus' high priestly prayer. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, that means during the church age, but keep them from the evil one. Tereo ek. Does that mean, as Bob often talks about in Colossians 1, 13 through 14, at conversion we have our domain change, we go from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved Son, do we go back and forth between the two camps? Or are we forever secure? 
Well, we're forever secure. Why? Because God the Father honors the prayer of the Son that we will never, ever go into the camp of Satan once again. We are preserved on the outside. And so in the same way, teraoak means we are preserved on the outside of the hour of testing. Well, now some look at that phrase, the hour of testing, they say, well, that must have been just a local skirmish, a local testing perhaps for the church at Philadelphia. Well, let's look at the data. Look at Revelation 3.10 again. Notice it's an hour that's about to come upon the whole world. So it's not local. It's not just for that area. It's going to involve the whole world. Just as Isaiah 13 says that God in the day of the Lord will judge the entire world. He says the same thing. Now notice the testing of this time Notice it says it's to test. This is a purpose, by the way, a purpose clause. The design of this testing that comes upon the whole world is to test those who dwell on the earth. That's a phrase that occurs eight times, the phrase those who dwell on the earth. It occurs eight times in the book of Revelation, and it's used exclusively of earth dwellers, which are the unregenerate. They're unbelievers. So the purpose of this wrath that comes is exclusively to test those who what? Who are unbelievers. That's what it's for. So what we can tell then is there's going to be a universal cataclysmic event and the people of God are going to be preserved on the outside of it. Remember from Luke 17, 29, Jesus says that the day that Lot went out, the wrath came. In Matthew 24, 43, Jesus says when Noah went out, the wrath came. Jesus says that Noah was put in the ark, and that day the wrath came. The precedent in Scripture is the people of God are removed, then the wrath comes. The only way that that can occur is if, in fact, you are raptured at the beginning of the parousia. We already proved the connection between the rapture and the parousia, the resurrection. Are you with me? We did that from 1 Corinthians 15.23 and 1 Thessalonians 4.15. So now we know that the parousia begins with the rapture, and therefore the resurrection. Well, how do we know that the wrath begins in the first part of this time period? Well, let's have you turn your Bibles real quickly to Matthew 24, 39. Matthew 24, 39. And this will be kind of seem silly at first, but trust me, this will bear fruit for us. Matthew 24, 39. Matthew 24, 39. Notice here Jesus talking again about what happened in the time of Noah. He says in Matthew 24, 39, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming, there again is the parousia of the Son of Man be. So there was nothing to tip the people off. The parousia came, or excuse me, the parousia will come just like that. There's, there's nothing to tip you off. All they had was the preaching of Noah. All the people in your day have is the preaching of the gospel. Why does Jesus say a wicked and adulterous generation seek for a sign, but none will be given to it, except for the sign of Jonah, which is what? Jonah was dead for three days in the ground, and for all intents and purposes, it was like he was raised. That's the sign that's given to this generation, the sign of the resurrection. Where do people hear about the resurrection? Do they see it visibly? No, they hear it from your preaching, from the scriptures, from the radio, people are preaching, teaching, etc. That's where they're going to hear it. And if they reject it, 
the parousia will come upon them just like the destruction of the time of Noah. Now, this seems a little odd, but bear with me. I want you to really look at that verb, took them all away. The, the verb is took. That is actually an aorist active indicative of arrow. Now here, I want to ask the question. It's an aorist tense. The aorist tense, what I'm claiming, is the indicative. So that you have aorist tense, indicative mood. What I'm saying is the aorist always normally refers to, in the indicative mood, the past tense. Would anybody in the context of Matthew 24, 39 say that this taking of the people in Noah's day away was something that's going to happen in the future? Well, no, you would say, well, that obviously happened in Noah's day. Now, the reason I say that is let me read to you about the aorist active indicative. This is right from Bob and I have a software package called Logos. And in it, they have a glossary of morphosyntactic database terminology. How exciting is that? What did you study this weekend, Eric? Well, I was looking at the glossary of morphosyntactic database terminology. But listen to what they say regarding the aorist. The aorist verb tense, it says, is used by the writer to present the action of a verb as a snapshot event. The verb's action is portrayed simply and in summary fashion without respect to any process. In the indicative mood, the aorist usually denotes past time. Unquote. I'll just stop there. Do you notice that in the indicative mood, it usually refers to past time? Why is that important? Well, let's turn our Bibles to Revelation 6.17. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 6.17. And when you get there, I want to pause for a moment, and I want to show you where this is occurring on our timeline. Again, Revelation 6.17. We're going to get a robust understanding of the parousia from this work. Revelation 6.17. I'm going to make a point with this aorist as it's used. Revelation 6.17. So before we read it, I want you to look on the screen with me. I notice the 70th week of Daniel. The opening of the seal judgments in Revelation 6 are identical to what Jesus is talking about in his Olivet Discourse. Wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, and false Christ. The first four seals are identical. Why? This is in Revelation 6, because Jesus is describing the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel, so is Revelation 6. How can we prove that Jesus is talking about Daniel's last seven years, the 70th week of Daniel? Because in Matthew 24, 15, he says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of Daniel by Daniel the prophet, and then it says, let the reader understand. So we know he's talking about this time period. Well, Revelation 6, therefore, is talking about the same time period. So after you have the worst warfare that the planet will ever see up until that point, 25% of the earth will die due to sword, famine, pestilence, wild beasts. That's the fourth seal. You get to the fifth seal, you get to the sixth seal, you have these earthquakes. It's just horrendous. And lo and behold, in Revelation 6, 17, the unregenerate is hiding. They're hiding. And what did they say? For the great day of their wrath has come. Even the, notice the, the verb has come. Then they ask, and who is able to stand? So the question is, for the great day of the wrath has come, who is able to stand? But notice the declaration has come. It's an aorist active indicative. What does the aorist active indicative normally refer to? Past tense. So they're saying the wrath has come past tense. Is everyone with me? So what does that mean? Well, that means... 
that even the unregenerate are clued in that the very beginning of the 70th week of Daniel, when they saw a quarter of the earth die due to sword, famine, pestilence, wild beasts, this is the wrath of God. So get, get a load of this now. There are some movements that will say, like pre-wrath or post-trib, they'll say, well, the wrath can't mean that there. The has come must be an ingressive aorist. Again, let me read to you from the glossary of morphosyntactic database terminology. In the indicative mood, the aorist usually denotes past tense. In the indicative. So we have to have some contextual clue to tell us that this is not a normal aorist. And we don't have that. It's simply that the unregenerate is making a summary statement. Why are they hiding in the rocks? Because they know that the wrath of God has come. Let me give you an analogy. Let's say you see a bunch of Russian soldiers on the front with the Germans, and they're all hiding. They knew that there was going to be a German offensive that's coming, and they're all hiding in their foxholes because the shelling is so bad, and they say, ah, the German offensive has come. And that's why they're hiding in the foxholes. Would you gather from that that it's an ingressive aorist and that the German offensive is going to come? Well, of course not. You'd have to read that into the text. What I'm showing you in a very nerdy way is that there is no way that when they say the great wrath, the day of the great, I'm sorry, for the great day of their wrath has come, that is not looking forward to the future. That is a summary of what they have seen in the first half of the 70th week of Daniel. So if God's wrath is being poured out then, and you've been promised exemption from wrath and the parousia, Therefore, the parousia begins with the rapture of the church. Now, why is this so important? Well, I'm going to show you another part of the parousia. If you don't understand the parousia is a seven-year program, you'll always be out in left field. Turn your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians 2.8, and this will be the last point we make regarding the parousia. I want you to see that the last part of it is also considered the parousia at the very end of the 70th week. And here's why we know this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. Notice 2 Thessalonians 2.8. Here Paul is talking about the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness who sets himself up in the temple. It says, Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Parousia. Notice, when, what, when is he going to die? When is this Antichrist, this lawless one, going to be put away? Well, with the appearance of his parousia, his coming. According to Revelation, jot these verses down. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21. In the book of Revelation, at the end of the 70th week, it talks about how Messiah defeats the Antichrist and he throws him where? Into the lake of fire. Well, that's exactly what Paul is talking about in 2 Thessalonians 2.8. And so when does it happen? It happens at the end of the parousia. So the resurrection begins at the beginning of the parousia, but the destruction of the Antichrist can't happen here because then you wouldn't have a great tribulation from the midpoint on. Are you with me? So we have to see that in 2 Thessalonians 2.8, if he is crushed, that is the Antichrist, at the parousia, it must be the end of the 70th week, according to Revelation 19, 11 through 21, and 2 Thessalonians 2, 8. Why are we laboring that? Because the parousia is a plurality of days. It extends from the rapture of the church 
where Christ comes for the church, we are now in heaven as we're excused from the wrath of God poured out. Now Jesus comes with the church and he destroys the Antichrist with the appearance of his parousia. That's the parousia. The parousia is not one day. It's a seven-year complex of days. Now let's go back then and bring that to our understanding. When Peter says that in the last days, mockers are going to mock and say, where is his parousia? Of course it has to be in the church age that we're living in. It can't be just prior to 70 A.D., because Jesus' parousia still has not occurred. Has anyone seen the Antichrist destroyed? Well, of course not. Has anybody seen the rapture? Of course not. So until the rapture occurs, there's going to be people who are going to mock, just like they did in the days of Noah as he was building the ark. And there's going to be mockers, but Peter says, no, this day will happen. So the last days cannot end in 70 A.D. as the post-millennialist claim. They have to extend from the first advent to the parousia, the second advent. Okay, now, let's look at another point of equivocation. The next point is they say that the end of the age is the end of the old covenant, that that's all it is. So again, they would see that the end of the age, referred to by Jesus in Matthew 24, is simply in 70 AD, and it is the end of the old covenant period because with the destruction of the temple, it's the final nail again, in the Old Covenant period. Now, remember what we're arguing about. We're arguing about the question in Matthew 24, verse 3, where the disciples ask, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So if you talk about the end of the age with a post-millennialist, someone who's very informed with the Scriptures, they'll say, well, yeah, that happened in 70 AD because that's the end of the Old Covenant era. So now we're living they say, in the new age. Well, what's very interesting is that there's a good way of proving that this is not the case. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew 13, 49. And Matthew 13, 49, by the way, the ESV has a bet, much better rendering of it in the Greek, I think. So I'll be reading from the ESV version. Matthew 13, 49. We're going to look at if the post-millennialists have a point that the end of the age ended in 70 AD, and I'll show you that they do not. Matthew 13, 49. Jesus says, So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. Now, did anybody notice any commentator like Josephus mentioned that in 70 AD, there was angels that came and separated the righteous from the unrighteous? No. So to the end of the age, according to Jesus, happens in the parousia, when in fact this will occur. Let's look at another passage, Matthew 28, 20. Let's look at the Great Commission. The Great Commission, Jesus says, remember he says, therefore all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. Therefore go and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded. Then he says, lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. Now does that mean Jesus is only with his people till 70 AD, and then that's it. He's out of there. He wants nothing to do with us. Why? Because the end of the age happened in 70 AD. Well, of course it's absurd. Does that not mean he's not spiritually, as it were, with his church now? Well, of course he is. He's with us to the end of the age, which is what? 
the end of the age happens after the end of the 70th week of Daniel, where you end up, end up in the millennial reign of Christ. Okay, so yes, Jesus is going to be with his church to the end of the age. That can't be 70 AD. So they equivocate on the end of the age. And again, all of this post-millennialism, I'm giving you the best post-millennialism that's out there. These are the people who take the scriptures seriously. And so what I'm going to show you is post-millennialism is inherently wrong. Now I'm going to show you where we have other problems. The abomination that causes desolation. Post-millennialists, see this is fulfilled by the Romans sacking Jerusalem in 70 AD. So when Jesus warns his audience in Matthew 24, 15, so when you see the abomination that causes desolation, those who are in Judea are to flee to the mountains. They want to make that about 70 AD alone. But that's all it's about. In fact, let me give you a quote here from Jeff Durbin. Uh, Jeff Durbin compares, he says this in the same video that I was talking about, he compares Matthew 24, 15, the phrase where Jesus says, so when you see the abomination of desolation, with Luke 21, 20. So jot those two down, Luke 21, 20, where Jesus says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. Okay, now let me refute this for a moment. So again, what they're doing is they're conflating Matthew 24, 15 with Luke 21, 20. Now here's something everyone should know. When you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there are differences between Matthew, Mark, who have the same view, or I should say they write the same version of the Olivet Discourse, and Luke 21. What I mean by that is when you read the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and Mark 13, they're focused only on the parousia, the future. Luke 21, however focuses both on the 70 A.D. destruction of Jerusalem and the future parousia. Now, let me prove to you why that is. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew 24, 3. And what I want you to do is you turn there, make sure you mark it and kind of hold on to it because we're going to flip back and forth between that and Luke 21, 7. And I'm going to show you a difference between the question that's asked by the disciples and how it's rendered by Matthew and how it's rendered by Luke. And then I'll show you also another unique phrase that Luke tips us off that he's dealing with 80-70. Notice in Matthew 24, 3, remember the setting here, it says, and he was sitting on the Mount of Olives. Does everyone see that in Matthew 24, 3? Why is that important? That's important because according to Zechariah 12 through 14, when the world rebels against God at the end, they're going to surround Jerusalem. And the Lord himself will intervene at the Mount of Olives. Well, during that time period, known as Jacob's great distress, the temple was going to be under assault again. So they think when Jesus has just talked about the destruction of the temple, that surely must be what Jesus is referring to. So that's what's on their mind. So it says the disciples came to him privately, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your parousia and the end of the age. Notice the question that the disciples ask, as recorded by Matthew, is about the parousia, the coming of Christ, and the end of the age. Now, hold on to that and flip to Luke 21, 7. You're going to see, and again, the reason why there's a difference here is more than likely this was taught on numerous occasions, and there would have been variations. So it's not that Luke is giving you, you know, a half-truth, or Matthew's giving some version that he just made up in his mind. No, these writers are hearing Jesus teach accurately, but each is crafting their message 
to get to the theological point that they want to make. And so Luke, notice it says in 21.7, they question him saying, Teacher, when therefore will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Notice what's conspicuously absent is there's no reference to the parousia or the end of the age. Now, Jesus does talk about the end of the age and the parousia in Luke 21. He does. But the point is that's not the only emphasis as it is in Matthew 24 and in Mark 13. Okay, now what's very interesting is there's a unique phrase. Hold on to Luke 21. Notice there's a unique phrase. So I can't get rid of my pointer here. There we go. There's a unique phrase in Luke 21.12. So from Luke 21.7, does everyone see the question? They're asking, when will these things be? What's going to be... When, is, when do these things happen regarding the destruction of the temple? Well, then from Luke 21, 8 through 11, Jesus talks about the parousia. He talks about warfare, famine, pestilence. He talks about the same thing that Jesus does in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. But notice when you get to Luke 21, 12. Notice this is a unique phrase. You have to see this. Luke 21, 12. Jesus, right after he talks about the end, he says... But before all these things. Does everyone see that in Luke 21, 12? That is unique. You will not see that phrase in either Mark 13 or Matthew 24. That is Jesus' way of tipping you off. Now he's going to talk about prior to the end, he's going to talk about 70 AD and the church age. He says, but before all these things, they will lay their hands on you, they will persecute you, deliver you to synagogues and prisons, bring you before kings and governors for my sake. In fact, he goes on all the way to verse 24, talking about what will happen to Jerusalem from 70 AD all the way through the church age. How do we know that? Because in Luke 21, 24, he talks about at the end of 70 AD, Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. We know that that's after 70 AD because after the 70... Think about it, dear ones. Look at the board with me. Don't miss this. After 70 AD, the temple is destroyed and the Jews are trampled on until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. After the 70th week, the Jews get a messianic kingdom. So, of course, in Luke 21, 24, he's not referring to the millennial kingdom. Does the millennial kingdom sound like a time where you're going to be, the Jerusalem will be trampled under by the, time, by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled? Well, no. But that's exactly what's happening during the last days. Now, he gets to verse 25 all the way to verse 28. He reverts now back to referring to the parousia. That is what is unique about Luke 21. Matthew 24 and Luke thir- excuse me, Mark 13 do not consider the 70 AD issue. It's, it's just not their point of focus. It's purely on the future. And again, the proof to me is Luke 21, 12, where he says, but before all these things. So therefore, in Luke 21, 20, when it talks about the army surrounding Jerusalem, that's regarding 70 AD. But in Matthew 24, 24, 15, the abomination that causes desolation, that's about the midpoint of the 70th week of Daniel. Luke 21, 20, when it talks about the army surrounding Jerusalem is 70 AD. Matthew 24, 15 is about this particular thing where the Antichrist who made a covenant for seven years breaks it 
And then he starts going after the saints and attacking the people of God. So much so that they have to be brought into the wilderness one final time. And then you have an Elijah-like figure. Remember, Elijah comes a second time. That all happens in the last three and a half years. Okay? So that's what's going on then. Now, let's um, turn our Bibles again to excuse me, 2 Thessalonians 2. Let's look at verses 3 through 8. And as you're turning there, I want to make some points here regarding the abomination of desolation and why that cannot refer to 70 A.D. We know that the abomination of desolation is a time in which a seven-year covenant has been made according to Daniel 9.27. And at the midpoint, it's broken. And when it's broken, according to Daniel 7.25 and according to Daniel 9.27, the law of Moses will be discarded and there will be a desecration of the temple. And according to 2 Thessalonians 2, an Antichrist will set himself up in the temple, declaring himself to be God. When did that happen under the Roman general Titus in 70 AD? It did not occur. So to shoehorn all of that into 70 AD is wishful thinking, but it's not what the Bible's teaching. It's not. Now, let me show you another problem. Let's turn our Bibles again. Let's not miss this. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 8. The Apostle Paul says, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now, notice he's going to describe the man of lawlessness. He says in verse 4, Who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes a seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Did Titus ever do that in 70 AD? No, he did not. Verse 5, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you, now verse 6, he says, no, what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. This is verse 7. Only he who now restrains him will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then verse 8, how, does he de- how is he destroyed? Verse 8, it says, Then the lawless one who is revealed, the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his parousia. Well, that's again happening at the end of the parousia. Remember, the term parousia there is the term for coming. It's the coming of Christ. Here's where post-millennialism, I think, borders on heresy. The Apostle Paul is saying that the Antichrist who declares himself to be God in the temple will be destroyed by Jesus Christ at his coming. A term that is reserved for the second coming of Christ. If you say that the second coming of Christ happened in 70 AD, you're a heretic. Because now there is no future coming of Christ. Are you with me? So that's why any form of postmillennialism, I don't really care if it's NER's version or if it's some reform version of it. I don't care. If it's post-millennial, it's heresy. If you're trying to say this happened in 70 AD, you're now denying the parousia, the coming of Christ. When in 70 AD did Jesus Christ bodily return and destroy the Antichrist with the splendor of his coming? That's the question on the table for the post-millennials. That's how serious eschatology error can be. And that's why Bob had mentioned when you're going to be writing a book, you're thinking about beginning with eschatology. Yeah, so 
amen for that. It, it, it does lead to some very important things. Now, one more thing I want to point out. With, we just read 2 Thessalonians 2.8, the destruction of the Antichrist. There's another passage that teaches this. It's Revelation 19.20. Turn to Revelation 19.20. Now, why is Revelation 19.20 important? Because it's at the end of the 70th week. So remember, Revelation 6 begins at the beginning of the seven years. By the time you get to Revelation 19, chronologically, you're at the end. That's what you're doing. You're going from the beginning of the 70th to the end of the 70th week. And by the way, this is agreed upon by those who are post-trib, mid-trib, pre-trib, pre-wrath. That's largely agreed upon, as long as you're pre-millennial. Okay, so from Revelation 6 to Revelation 19.20. So Revelation 19.20 is describing in greater detail what Paul alluded to in 2 Thessalonians 2.8. Notice it says, And the beast was seized. Who's the beast? What's the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness? after this final battle. And with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns, burns with brimstone. Did that happen in 70 AD? No. no. So that's the question to the post-millennialists and the partial preterists and the preterists. When did this happen in 70 AD? You think we would have known that the man of lawlessness was destroyed by the splendor of Christ coming and thrown into the lake of fire. But no, this is something that obviously awaits the future. Okay, now with that, um, I've thrown a lot out at you. I'm sorry, let me um, take some comments and questions, and I've, I've got more to go to, but I just wanted to get that out. So let's just review real quick. Again, the first advent of Christ, the last days are ushered in. What is the parousia? It is a seven-year complex of time. It's the 70th week of Daniel. It begins with the rapture. You're exempted from God's wrath, and it culminates in the destruction of the Antichrist. And that's why he's depicted as reigning for the last three and a half years or 42 months, according to Revelation 13.5. Does that make sense? The parousia is that event. And so hopefully that'll make sense and help you spot the error from postmillennialism and preterism. So with that, let me take uh, any comments or questions. Yes, Paul. In the second chapter of Joel, they talk about the day of the Lord. Would that be the same as the parousia? Yes, exactly. So the day of the Lord would begin right here. And it's interesting, as you mentioned, Joel, when you get to Joel 3, notice it's the enemy surrounding Jerusalem. That's the battle that occurs at the end. So that's the battle that's referred to by Jesus in Matthew 24, 31. That's the same battle that's referred to in Revelation 19. And that's exactly that's happening. So Technically, the day of the Lord begins here, but within the day of the Lord is that time period. Absolutely. Yep. Very good question to connect it. Yes. I'm sorry, anybody else? I th- thought we had maybe a com- uh, Yes, Luann, and then we'll come to Brian. And maybe this is off base, but I'm thinking of the irony of a Jewish person who did not have what we have today, but they did have the 169 B.C. Antiochus Epiphanes, which would have looked like this. It's a foreshadowing. Yeah. But the Jewish people did not think that that was what Jesus was talking about, correct? Exactly. So, So they had an example, but they did not think of it as the Antichrist. Now these, yes. these 70 A.D. people do not have an incident that they're trying to describe happened in 70 A.D., but they're saying it did. You know what I'm trying to say? Well said, exactly. So 164 B.C., it's much more parallel with Antiochus Epiphanes IV, who set himself up, who tried to claim to be some sort of deity, 
But what's interesting is there's a lot of details that still only are fulfilled by the Antichrist. For example, the, the making of a seven-year covenant. That is something that you can say, well, I don't really believe that literally will happen. Well, where else in Scripture are the prophecies not literal? When it says in Isaiah 53 there's going to be pierced through for our transgressions, I'm sure there's people that scoff, well, he, the Messiah won't be pierced. <laughs> well, he was. You know, so my point is all these details are literally going to be fulfilled. The point is 70 A.D., has nothing going for it. The rebuttal to me, the best one for 164 BC, is that Christ still puts it in the future. And let's say he's teaching the Olivet Discourse in 33 AD. The Apostle Paul, later than that, is still teaching that the man of lawlessness, well past 164 BC, is for the future. So we know that there's going to be a future fulfillment, and it cannot be 70 AD because none of the data for 70 AD works. So is that a good way to refute it, Luann? Did, Very good. Wasn't Antiochus event prophesied by Daniel in a different chapter? Exactly, absolutely, yes. Daniel the prophet does describe some of the work of Antiochus Epiphanes the fourth in, for example, Daniel um, Daniel chapter eleven. Eleven. Yeah, he does. He does refer to it. Yeah, all the way I think to verse thirty six. Then he switches again to the final Antichrist. Yes, Brian. Okay, I'm on. I'm on board with almost everything that you said. Okay, I got a couple okay. issues that you can uh, okay. you can refute me right now. Okay. So, okay. As far as the as in the days of Noah. Now we've debated this before, and 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 I'm not going the direction you may think I'm going. Okay. But but this is when Noah got on the boat. The wrath came, but it was forty days. There was a period of time. It wasn't like the deluge came and all of a sudden the mountains were covered with water. It was a 40-day process. Mm -hmm. I argue that when the rapture comes, that the... And what about the signing of the peace treaty? Okay? So my argument is you have the rapture and I'm claiming that I don't know how long of a gap period there is, but I believe there's a gap between the rapture and the actual beginning of the parousia. Because as we saw with the 40 days, as in the days of Noah, yeah. there could also be a build-up to that because it seems hard for me to believe that all of a sudden everybody, Christians, disappear off the face of the earth and immediately, I mean, I, you, when you say it starts right away, yeah. in that same instant, yeah. second after the rapture, boom, peace treaty signed, boom, all this stuff starts moving into action. It just doesn't seem Yeah, well, let's, let's a very good question. Thank you. Let's turn our Bibles to Luke 17. Let's start at verse 28. We'll read through 29, or actually through verse 30. Luke 17, 28 through 30. And I'll build the case that it does happen immediately after the rapture. That's how it's depicted in Scripture. The people are removed, the wrath comes. So again, you know, whether it's within five seconds or whatever, I mean, we don't want to, we don't know that, but the point is it's right away it's depicted Be, as Before coming. you make your argument, yes. I agree that as in the days of Noah, yes. Noah gets on the boat, the wrath comes. Yep. No, but you're it right. wasn't like everybody was dead that second. 
Exactly. There's it a process. Like, it was a four, it was a forty day process. Right. But okay. my point is the seventieth week, the entirety of the seven seven years, right after the rapture is considered the wrath of God. Now let me just lay out the case. Notice here Jesus making the equation between the days of Noah and the days of Jesus. Now he comes to Lot. This is Luke seventeen twenty eight. He says it was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. Stop there. Is any of that sinful? No. So life was going on as it always had in Sodom and Gomorrah. So notice it says, but on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. And notice it says, it will be just, there's hupos, it will be just the same on the day the Son of Man is revealed. That's the beginning of the parousia. So what's being described is right here, the people of God are going to be removed just like Lot was, and then the wrath comes. Okay. Does that, does that big, make sense? Yeah, well, big difference between yeah. fire and brimstone in 40 days of rain. So it could start raining on day one, day two, and you could still be doing things. Sure. All I'm pointing out is that the wrath of God begins after the people are removed. So, what are, so in other words, the Bible isn't concerned whether it's a flood in the case of Noah or whether it's the brimstone. And the, the idea is the wrath came. That's the whole point. So, exactly. That is the parousia. The beginning of it is the rapture. Yep. So then that ushers in the wrath of God. And that's why I'm so adamant that when you get to Revelation 6.17, the unregenerate, they're hiding themselves. They've seen all the things unveiled in the first three and a half years, or at least a big chunk of the first three and a half years. And they say, hide us from the wrath that has come. What about the peace treaty? Yeah, I believe that that happens right in the beginning. Right yes. How is it? Okay. We don't know. We don't know. That God providentially will bring it about. So, yes. Yeah, just a, a point here on the flood. Maybe I've got this wrong because I haven't looked it up, but once the door was closed to the ark, okay, not only did it rain for 40 days, but the the earth, you know, water came out from the from underneath the earth. I mean, I think it was a deluge from both directions. I think people died right away, but, you know, it's almost not that important, I guess. Yeah, the, the point is, as soon as Noah is removed, it's too late. When, when Lot is removed, it's too late. The wrath is coming. And that's the point is when the people of God are removed and you're still here, you're going to be going through the wrath of God. Now, what's interesting is there will be believers who come to faith during the last seven years. That's how merciful God is. And we don't deny that. In fact, that's what Revelation 20 has to answer, that some of them who come to faith during that time period, they will be martyred and then they are raised from the dead and they are still part of the first resurrection according to Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 through 5. Yeah, so very good points, all of you. Very good. Very good, careful reading, and thank you. Um, so with that, I'm sorry, we will finish the postmillennialism next time and get into Reconstructionism. Bob and I also next time want to talk about how the new apostolic reformation movement distorts the Great Commission in Matthew 28. What does it, ma- what does it mean to make disciples of all nations? Does it mean that we turn nations into being theocracies? Or does it mean that individuals, as the gospel, are, gospel is preached, individuals in all the nations are going to come to faith as God has for, foreordained? That's kind of the question we'll be looking at next time. So with that, thanks for your attention. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time together. I thank you for the word of God and the clarity. We do believe, Lord, in your scriptures, and we pray that you would help us to Think about the things that are above so that we may be those who persevere 
until the day that you do break through the clouds for us and take us home. I pray for Bob as he teaches from 1 Corinthians 4. I pray, Lord, that we would be not just hearers but doers of your word, that we would live transformed lives through the preaching of your word. We pray for Bob and blessings upon him. We also pray for Diane for her surgery tomorrow. We pray, Lord, that you would guide the hands of the surgeons. Give her the desired effect with this fusion on her her ankle. We pray for protection and healing in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless all.